If you're here for the first time, we're so thankful you've decided to worship with us today. Uh, we are officially uh, in Holy Week, you know, starting today. Today is Palm Sunday. Next week is Easter. Uh, and so, um, you know, we're, today we're ending Ephesians chapter 3, which begins, you know, a major shift in the book of Ephesians. You know, the first three chapters are all about who we are when we are in Christ. And then the last three chapters, chapters 4 through 6, are how we are to live in just everyday life. And so after Easter, we'll be in a new series, but we're still going to be in the book of Ephesians. But it will be more topical in nature because that's exactly how the second half of Ephesians is laid out. So we'll look at things just like unity in the church and how we are to live and to speak and to think. We'll look at things like marriage and parenting and work and what it looks like to engage in spiritual war. Like this is the Christian life. But that's after Easter. But today, at the end of Ephesians 3, we're covering a strand of verses that have greatly influenced me personally and also our church. You know, almost every single time we've gathered for a night of prayer and worship, we'll quote part of this text. Just praying and believing in faith. Ephesians 3.21, that God is able to do far more abundantly uh, than all that we ask or think according to, a, uh, to the power at work within us. And as we end our time, it will drive us and call us to pray and dream with boldness and confidence. Like it's a text that causes us to ask the question, does the vision of our life match the greatness of God. It causes us to ask, do our prayers match and reflect the immense richness of Jesus? And so I simply just want to invite you to dream today and to invite you to just pray for big things over all things. You know, as the great Michael Scott has said, uh, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, okay? Uh, we could just as easily say 100% of the prayers we don't pray, they go unanswered. And so what crazy, big, bold, audacious prayers do you want to come to God with today to commit to praying for with consistency and fervor? You know, this is something that we as a church, we love to do because we believe in a big God. And so that's the direction we're going today. But y'all want to be very honest about this. Yes, this text has been very shaping. And yes, it has challenged me while at the same time, I really struggle with it. It's hard for me. Because I also know the bigger the dreams and the bigger the prayers and the bigger the vision, the greater the letdown if it doesn't happen. And I don't know if anybody's ever been there when you have great plans and great dreams and excitement is building up just to be let down. Maybe with a grade you thought you'd get in a class or with some sort of opportunity at work or maybe in a relationship or maybe you've been praying for someone for 10 years or for 20 years and those prayers just seem to go unanswered. Y'all, there is something incredibly difficult about the agony of hope, about the fear of hoping and dreaming just to be let down yet again. Because every time you hope and dream, maybe it feels like it just keeps falling short. And I say that because I personally know that feeling. I've had those exact same thoughts. And do you know why this happens to me personally? Well, it's because I take Ephesians 3.21, believing in faith for the fruit of a big, bold prayer, but I forget everything that precedes it. New City, Ephesians 3.21, what we quote often, is the overflowing, outpouring result of verses 14 to 20. And so when we pray Ephesians 3.21 prayers, which we love to do here, praying for miracles and praying for a work of God, but when we do it without Ephesians 3.14 to 20, without those prayers, I can tell you just from personal experience, it is really easy to be filled with worry and doubt and unbelief and maybe just be tempted to be mad at God for not answering those prayers. It's almost as if we determine God's faithfulness on whether or not our prayers get answered. So I don't know about you, but I've been there. Like, I'm guilty of this. 
Like I intellectually know that's not right. But just as a public confession, y'all, my heart can very easily and be tempted to believe, uh, to believe that. And so what must we do to go to war on this? Well, we model Paul's entire prayer, not just verses 21. And so we must ask, what is it that moves Paul to ask God to do far more than we could ever ask or think? What is it that will lead us to dream and pray for crazy, audacious things just as an act of worship? Again, this is the journey that we're taking today. So that said, we're going to read our passage, and then I'll give us our main idea. We're going to take a brief Palm Sunday uh, detour in John that I think will help us in Ephesians chapter 3. We'll have a few points. We're going to dream a little bit and call it a day. Okay, so let's look at Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I love this text. Like, there's so much to chew on here. But what we'll see as our main idea is that the church must pray for a deep understanding of God's love and power. And that's what Paul is praying for the churches, which then leads Paul to pray for the impossible. Ephesians 3.21, it is the overflow of Paul just kind of marinating in the immense love and power of Jesus. Paul's focus in this entire prayer is Jesus, not what he's praying for out in the world. Yes, we we pray for miracles, and we pray for big, bold, crazy things, but if we do it without first looking to Jesus and just being in awe of God, it's almost like we're asking for a wish, seeing God as a genie, just to give us what we want. Again, the focus is Jesus, not the outcome of his prayer. But yet, when we're overwhelmed by the deep and abounding love and power of God, what happens? We pray for crazy things. We dream and believe in faith for God to move. But it's out of the overflow of our worship. It doesn't drive our worship. And so I want to pause here. We're going to come back to this. But I want to take a quick detour in the book of John. Somewhat to help us prepare our hearts for Easter. That I think will also help Paul's prayer just come alive. So hang with me here for a few minutes. And so I want to draw our attention to John chapter 12. Um, where at this point in Jesus' ministry, all the crowds, they were amazed at what Jesus was doing with his miracles. He was healing people. He was multiplying food, walking on water, raising the dead. Just incredible things that only God could do. And at this point in Jesus' life, he was about a week away from his death. And the crowds heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so Jesus came riding into town on a donkey, showing his humility. And everyone was shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Essentially saying, our king has come. He's here. Now what the crowds were thinking was that he would be their political king to save them from their political troubles, their external strife and problems. But as we know, that's not why Jesus came. He came to be a totally different type of king. He didn't come to be their political king. He came to be the king of their hearts, which is what we see Paul praying for in Ephesians 3. And so I want you to keep that image of Jesus coming in humbly as a king. Just everyone praising him as king. And then we fast forward a couple days. Same week. Where we see Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And praying to God with much agony. Like literally sweating blood. I mean let's talk about a quick turn of events in about four days. (laughs) 
And there in the garden, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And why was Jesus praying this? Because he knew the pain of the cross that awaited him. He knew that he would not be crowned with a golden crown filled with rubies and a comfortable throne. No, but rather he knew that he would be crowned with thorns met with torture. Jesus knew the beating and the lashings and the torture of the nails that would be driven into his hands and feet while being on the cross, just gasping for air. Jesus knew the cup of God's wrath that would be poured out on him because of your sin and my sin and the sin of the world that would separate Jesus from God. Jesus had a deep, intimate relationship with God, but at the cross, he knew he would be separated from that. And he said, God, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But then he said, not my will, God, but your will. And so what happened? Well, Jesus went to the cross to be tortured and to die. I don't know about you, but I think Jesus knows what it feels like to have his prayers go unanswered. But yet at the same time, there in the garden, Jesus never determined the faithfulness of God by the outcome of his prayer. No, Jesus' greatest desire was God's desire. And so Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will. And so what did Jesus gladly do? Well, he went to the cross and died to pay for your sin and for my sin. Jesus died to take away your guilt and my guilt and your shame and my shame. The cross where Jesus died was the penalty that we deserve for our sin. But yet Jesus took our penalty in our place and he went so that we wouldn't have to. Church, that's the gospel. The cross, uh, the, Jesus lived the life that we could not live, and he died the death that we deserve to die. Jesus went in our place. Jesus could have been crowned as an earthly king, but he rejected that, and he went to the cross so that you and I could have a way to be in his eternal kingdom forever. And so if you're here today and you've never heard that today, through believing in Jesus, you can walk out of this room totally free just from the penalty of your sin. Like you can be clean and free forever by believing in Jesus and only Jesus. You know, we cannot enter into God's forever kingdom by doing more good than bad, by being a religiously moral person by, or by saying prayers or attending church or by making religious sacrifices. No, the blood that Jesus shed at the cross was and is sufficient for my sin and your sin, past, present, and future. And so when we ask, why did God not answer Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in that holy week? The answer is because God had saving you and me from our sin on his heart and mind. God wants us to be in his forever kingdom. And as we'll see today from Ephesians chapter 3, Jesus wants in his, in his kingdom and he wants us to be fully aware and fully alive knowing the depths of his incredible love and power. And do you know what we could also say as we come back from our detour to the cross? We could also say that God left Jesus' prayer unanswered in the garden so that God could then give us Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. So that, so that said, let's look at Paul. Look, look what he said in Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. He said, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So God did not answer Jesus' prayer in the garden of Gethsemane because God wanted you and me to be able to bow our knees in prayer before God. Not just into eternity, but also just in our everyday life. Like right now, today. 
And so the good and perfect will of God was to crush his son at the cross so that you and I can pray to God with boldness and confidence. So Jesus willingly went to the cross to suffer and die, not taking on a temporary kingdom because he had every family in heaven and on earth on his minds, as Ephesians 3.15 just told us, desiring them and us to be in his forever eternal kingdom. Again, Jesus could have been crowned immediately as king, but he chose instead to go to the cross so that you and I could be children of the king, intimately knowing his love and power that Paul is praying for us in Ephesians 3. Something I want you to notice from verse 14 of Ephesians 3 is that Paul said, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father. So Jesus going to the cross to die... So that you and I, and also Paul, could have intimacy with God, it drove Paul to his knees, bowing down in humility. Leading us to our first point, number one, prayer begins with a posture of humility. When the agony of the cross and the love of Jesus is on our heart and mind as we pray, it humbles us. The cross of Jesus, it humbles us. And so what did Paul do? Well, he got down on his hands and knees, overwhelmed by God's love and power. And no, we we don't have to be on our hands and knees in order to pray to God. But I will say this, when when we do that, our heart posture often follows our physical posture. You know, it's really hard to be down on our hands and knees begging God in prayer and then feel as if we're entitled to something. No, God doesn't owe us anything. He already gave us everything at the cross. New City, when we come to God in a posture of humility, we're innately saying, God, I cannot do this in my own strength. I cannot do this in my own power. We're weak. We're needy. We need help. God, we need you. God, you're the king, and I'm not. And maybe today, maybe this week, what if the Lord is leading you just to get down on your hands and knees and beg God to save someone that you love that is far from God? And something I don't want us to miss is that, yes, we come before the Lord in humility, but may we not forget we also come with boldness and confidence. Look at what Paul says, starting in verse 16. Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So why can we pray with boldness and confidence? Well, because as we just read in verse 16, God, he's rich. He's rich with glory. His wisdom and goodness and kindness, it never ends. But then get this, when we come to God in humility and also with boldness and confidence, you know what it does? Paul says it strengthens our inner being. The riches of God's glory that we come to when we pray, what do they do? Well, they strengthen us by the power of the Spirit. This is an incredible gift leading us to number two. Prayer strengthens our heart and soul through the power of the Spirit. And when we dream and pray and we come to God as an act of worship to the Lord, something incredible happens to us. Our eyes come off of ourself, they come off of our circumstances, and they're gazed upon God and His glory and strength and power. And the byproduct is a strengthened inner being, a strengthened soul. Our weary soul is renewed. And we see the faithfulness of God in our worship and not dependent on whether God answers our prayer, our heart and soul and inner being is strengthened and moved to peace. And why? Because this is, the God, this is the way that God made us to live. We are not made to look at ourselves and our circumstances, but to God. And every time we come to God and cry out to Him, when Jesus is our primary focus, whether He answers our prayers or not, our soul is strengthened. Listen, if you come today weary or down or struggling, I want to call you to come to Christ and just look to the Lord. 
and pray according to the riches of God's glory. Come to him, crying out to him, saying, God, you are rich with goodness. Would you help me be strengthened with power to see your goodness and to see your kindness? God, we need your power to work in my inner being, just as Paul prayed. So the first step in working in our inner life is simply coming to God in prayer and saying, God, I need help. I need your power. As our main idea suggests, we must pray for God's power. I mean, just think about this. I find this so fascinating. Because Paul, he's in jail. And I'm no expert here, but I don't think... uh, it's not the best, I don't, wouldn't think it's the best of circumstances, okay? He's likely in some sort of hole. Maybe he's eating, maybe he's not. And what does Paul pray for? Well, he doesn't pray to get out of jail. He doesn't pray for his external suffering. No, he prays for the people around him to have their inner life, their heart and soul strengthened through the power of the Spirit. And why? Well, because Paul knows that our outer life is more, imp- our inner life is more important than our outer life. You know, one pastor said it this way, if our inner life is strong and our outer life is crumbling, we can move into our outer life in strength. We're on the flip side, if our outer life is strong and our inner life is weak, we go into the world in weakness. You know, when Paul prays for power, he's praying for power in our heart and soul. He's praying for the Spirit of God to strengthen us on the inside. Yes, absolutely. We pray for God's power to be displayed outside of us. But what does Paul first pray? He first prays for God's power to do a work inside of us. So let's ask ourselves, what does it look like to develop our inner life? What does it look like for the Spirit of God to display His power in our heart and soul? Like, are you praying boldly for a healthy inner life, praying for yourself and for others around you? That was Paul's prayer. And so New City, let's do the same. Let's look at what he says next, starting in verse 17. Paul says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Again, in these verses, just like last week, there's a lot of language about the grandness of Jesus and for us to grasp it and see it. But Paul is saying we can come to God to have our inner life strengthened. And what happens when we come to God? Asking God to strengthen us with his power. Well, Paul says in verse 17, Christ then dwells in our hearts. He enters our inner life. He comes inside of us. And so in essence, when we come to God in prayer and in humility and in dependence, uh, we're essentially essentially making space for Jesus to rule our hearts. I mean, so how is our inner life strengthened? It's not by our power, but it's by God's power. It's almost like we're clearing out our desires and wants and we're making space for then Jesus to come in and fill us with his desires and wants. And by doing so, we're making space just for his power in our life. And so when we come to God in our weakness and dependence, we've made space for God's power to go to work. You know, I love the second half of verse 17. This is so good for us. Because when Jesus dwells in our hearts, when Jesus is filling up our inner life by the power of his spirit, what does it say we're rooted and grounded in? Are we rooted and grounded in hate or fear or sadness or unbelief? No, Paul says that we're rooted and we're grounded in love. I mean, just think about roots for a second. Like plant roots. (laughs) You know, my son, he has a lima bean sitting on our window. It's a Ziploc bag that he started at school. And honestly, it was one of those things that I thought, what are we supposed to do with this? Like, we tried to throw it away. 
Uh, but he wanted to keep it, and so it's sitting on our window seal. And now this is what I do with you. I, t- I tell you about it, okay? And so it's recently sprouted, and the roots are starting to come out, and they're actually clinging to a napkin, like a, a wet napkin in the back. The roots are clinging there, and I think we can all agree it can't live in that bag for very long, clinging to a napkin. No, it needs to be planted in something. And where does it need to go? What well, needs to go in dirt. Because what do roots do? Where do roots sit? They sit in dirt. They hold on to the dirt. They gain nutrients from the soil. And so if that seed has, that has sprouted roots, if it doesn't make into healthy soil where it can get water and nutrients and space to grow, it's not going to make it clinging to that napkin. No, that lima bean is going to end up in the trash because it needs a healthy soil. And so Paul is using this rooted language saying when we come to God in his word and in prayer, we're rooting ourselves, we're holding on to, we're clinging to, we're graining nutrients from the immense richness of God's love and power and not something like that napkin that won't sustain us. When we're rooted in the love of Jesus, our love for Jesus, it grows and we also grow because our inner life is shaped by Jesus and not the napkin of the world. And so if we're rooted and clinging to the love of Jesus, well, what happens next? Paul says in verse 18 and 19, look at it again, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so when we're rooted in the love of Jesus by coming to God in prayer, it helps us to see with all the saints, with all of God's people, as Paul says, it helps us to see the love of God. Showing us, number three, prayer helps us to better know the love of Jesus. Prayer, it helps us to better understand not just how to articulate the love of God from an intellectual standpoint, but it helps us to know it deeply down in our heart and soul. It helps us to have an intimate connection with Jesus. Paul says we need strength to comprehend. We need strength to know and to understand the deep and intimate love connection with God that surpasses knowledge. And what Paul is telling us is that there is an intimate relationship with Jesus that can't be understood in a theology class. You know, we love theology here. We love to study the Bible. We want to teach it and memorize it. Uh, we're here, like, if you're here for very long, you'll learn real quick. The Bible, it drives everything we do. But what Paul is saying here is that there is a love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge. It surpasses intellect and facts. There is an intimacy with Jesus that is driven and guided and guarded by the word of God. But Paul is praying that these truths would go from our head to our heart. That we wouldn't just know theology, but that we would pray it and live it and be changed by it. It's one thing to know the truth, but it's an entirely different thing to be ruled by it and changed by it. In verse 19, Paul is praying that these churches would be filled just with the fullness of God's love. I love this because what is totally true is that God can't possibly love us anymore and he can't love us any less because of Jesus. Like our standing before God is totally 100% child of God. That's our identity. We're 100% fully with God through our faith in Jesus and that cannot be taken from us while at the exact same time, sometimes we just know it more deeply. We just understand it more passionately. There's a greater experience of the love of God. Maybe this will help us help make sense. You know, I tell my kids all the time that I love them. I, I, I don't want them to ever forget there's nothing they can do that will make me love them any less. You know, when I ask them, how do you know for sure that I love you? 
Like, when do you know it the most? Well, I asked him that question often, and this week one of them was like, well, when you buy me Pokemon cards? I was like, that's not what I'm looking for. And then I asked again. And then they were just like, well, when, when I hug them, or when I'm sitting down with them, or laughing with them and encouraging them and connecting with them in an experiential way. You know, I love them just as much when I'm on a plane halfway around the world, but they know it the most when they can feel it and experience it in a real way. And that's what happens in prayer. When we come to God and pray boldly and with confidence about the things we already intellectually know to be true, when we bring our fears and worries to God with confidence and boldness and proclaim to God what is true and not true about those fears and worries, the love of Jesus in our life grows deeper. You know, Paul is showing us a few things in these verses, and it's first that our prayer life is directly connected to our intimacy with Jesus. Prayer, it pours fuel on the fire of our intimacy with God. But then secondly, Paul is also very aware that we all have spiritual blind spots. Paul knows that there's something for us to understand and to grasp that we often struggle to see and to understand. Because he's praying that all the saints, that all the people of God would have the strength to overcome our blind spots and to see the love of Jesus more deeply. I mean, if, if, if we always fully understood the fullness of God's love, we'd always be filled with joy and boldness and be kind and gentle and filled with peace. But yet we're not. And why? Well, because we still live in a fallen world and we all have spiritual blind spots. We're forgetful people. Our eyes easily drift to other loves that don't satisfy. Our hearts are easily drawn towards things that are easier to grasp and to be rooted in, kind of like that napkin. You know, it's not hard to find ourselves rooted in our career or in our relationship or on the outcome of a situation, but yet Paul is urging the churches and us and praying that we be rooted and grounded in the deep, affectionate love of Jesus. And in order to somehow, and to some way, articulate the grandness of God's love, in verse 18, Paul uses language that said the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love that surpasses knowledge. I mean, just think about those words. Think about that. Just the, the breadth of God, or to say it another way, the width of God's love. Like, what's the width and the length of God's love? Well, it's hard to say exactly what Paul means here, but we can try to make a stab at it. Maybe we could say the width and the length of God's love is as far as the east is from the, in the west. It never ends in both directions. When we think about the breadth and length of God's love, maybe we could think about it how long we could run from God. And, and get this, God's stamina of love for us will always outrun our anger and unbelief with him. God's love for us will always be greater than our frustrations with him. The length of God's grace, it will always be greater than our sin. What about the height of God's love? How high is God's love for us? Again, I don't know if this is what Paul is getting at, but I'm going to say that the height of God's love is as high as the heavens. And, is, and why? Because that's where his love takes us. That's where our belief in Jesus takes us. It takes us to be with God forever in heaven. What about the depth of God's love? How deep is God's love for us? Well, maybe let's just ask the question, how long how low would God's love go to get us? Well, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus left heaven in the form of God. He emptied himself and was born in the likeness of man as a baby in a manger. He went down to the cross, was tortured, died, and defeated death and hell to rescue us, pulling us out of our deep pit of sin and despair. Jesus went down to the throne he went from the throne of God down to the cross and then into the depravity of our very life to display his love for us. 
I don't know if that does justice to the extent of God's love, but it at least scratches the surface of the immense iceberg of his love for us. Y'all, we could keep going on and on and on about the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. But what Paul is getting at is that when we come to God with boldness and in prayer, we're at least a step closer to grasping it. You know, when my kids are confident in our love for them, they're going to be more confident in bringing their insecurities and struggles and hardships to us so that we can help them work through it. You know, we are a forgetful people often. Like, we need God's word to remind us and teach us and show us his love every day. And we then have to pray through those truths to grasp it into our hearts and souls, praying for the power and the strength and the ability just to see just a bit of it. Well, Jesus died so that God could hear our prayers, so that we could deeply know and grasp his love. And what I want us to ask ourselves, just like I said at the beginning, is the simple question, do our prayers reflect the greatness of God's love? Like if we just inspected our prayers and what we believe, the plan God has for our life, for the people that we love and for our church and for those that are far from God, what would those prayers and dreams and visions say about the love of God? And I want you to take notice of what Paul says about God in the same vein as a response just to the deep love of God. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So after Paul speaks of the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God and that we would have the strength just to comprehend it, he then says, now to him, speaking of God, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. And so not just abundantly and not just more abundantly, but far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. Like that's four different layers and levels of God's abundance and richness that Paul is trying to express. And then according to what? How will God do far more than we could ever dream or ask or think? He says, well, according to the power of Christ at work within us. As our main idea suggests today, we must pray expectantly for God's power. We must do it as an act of worship, which leads us to our last point. Number four, our worship of God moves us to pray boldly with power. And just like we said at the beginning, our worship is not dependent on the outcome of our prayers. No, our worship is dependent on the love and power of God that Jesus displayed at the cross. Our prayers are simply an outpouring and an overflow of worship And so I want you to think back with me just for a second, thinking back to to Jesus riding on a donkey and everyone shouting for Jesus when they were ready to crown him as king. And all the while, Jesus knew he was riding towards his death. Again, I can't help but think, while Jesus was riding on a donkey with everyone just so impressed by his power and miracles that he had done, raising the dead and healing the sick, walking on water, multiplying food and wine, like there was Jesus seeing these people. They were praising him as king, just so impressed by his power. All the while, he knew that after his death and res- resurrection, instead of him being praised for his display of power, I just imagine Jesus thinking about how he would later be praised for that same power that would be displayed through his people through us because of our faith new city jesus went to the cross died and rose again not to suspend his power but to multiply his power our god is a god of power who is always working in the world and how does he work he works through the church he works through us 
And so again, I want to invite you to dream and pray and to not lose heart. I want to invite you to dream and pray in all areas and in all ways. No dream and no prayer is outside of the reach and the hand of God. I mean, dream about your career and your future and your family, your kids, your friends. Dream for your spouse, your finances, your health, your family's health. Nothing is too far from the hand of God. And it is good and right for us to do this. While also knowing God is not our genie. Like we need to always be asking, do these prayers glorify God? We need to search out our intentions. Are these prayers more for my glory or for God's glory? No, God is not our genie that gives us whatever we want. He's our creator that gives us exactly what we need. But you know what? He does love to bless his children. We have not because we ask not. And so we ask and we ask and we ask and we ask. And it is good and right for us to do this in all areas. But with that, what I want to call us to do is to pray Paul's prayer for ourselves and for those in our life. Just to pray and dream according to the love of God that we would have the strength to comprehend and know the immense love of God, not just to intellectually know it, but to intimately know it in a personal way. Now we've been asking this for the past several weeks. Who is it that is far from God but close to you? Who is it that you can pray this specific prayer for that they would intimately know the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love? Y'all, this has been my prayer for everyone who comes to our Easter service next week. They would hear the gospel of the cross and the resurrection and just be overwhelmed by the immense love of God and as a response, just give their life to Jesus. Y'all, there are a lot of things that I pray for my kids, but this prayer is at the top of the list for all of them. They would just know the gospel and have a mental understanding of Jesus, but that they would have an overwhelming, immense, and deeply personal relationship with Jesus. And that they would be raised up to be firm, steadfast gospel warriors who are resilient in their faith and loving in their demeanor. You know, I pray this for myself, for all the people of New City, that we would be known for having a deep and abiding, intimate relationship with Jesus. That we would have a really big view of God, of Jesus and the cross and the Spirit of God at work in our lives. You know, I pray often that we would be known as the people that are just white hot on fire for Jesus. You know, nothing would be more discouraging to me than to pastor a lukewarm church that had a small view of God. That would just grate at my soul. And just knowing that so many of your hearts for Jesus, that your faith is real and genuine, and hearing the things y'all are praying for and believing in God for, and hearing how you live on mission, I couldn't be more thankful for our church. Y'all, I love our church. I love y'all so much. And do you know what happens when a church has an intimate, deep relationship with Jesus and when we have a deep understanding of the love of God and his glory and his power? Do you know what happens? We just pray joyfully for crazy big things. We pray for dozens and dozens of people to come to Christ and to be baptized. We pray for nothing short of a revival. We pray for lifelong strongholds to be broken. We pray for marriages on the brink of divorce to be restored. We pray for anxiety and depression to be loosed. We pray for those that we love in our life to be, that have adamantly rejected God to have their eyes open to the beauty of Jesus. You know, we can pray for 300 people at Easter and pray for 100 of which that don't have a relationship with Jesus, that they would hear the gospel and that God would save them. We can pray for 100 kids at Kids Week and for our student ministry to double, if not triple. And Y'all haven't said this publicly, but over the past month since we got back from the Middle East, I have been praying and believing in faith that our giving would triple over the next few years. And not just so we can have a bigger budget. But because with those resources, there is so much we could do to pour fuel on the fire of what God is already doing here. 
I mean, just with the hopes of seeing more people have an intimate relationship with Jesus, to know the deep love of Jesus, and then be sent back out into the community and around the world on fire for the Lord. Again, we don't pray for these things because we see God as our genie giving us our wants and wishes because, again, they may happen, they may not. But we pray these things because our God deserves big dreams and bold prayers. And you know what I have to tell myself over and over and over again, being, just being stuck, getting into my thick, stubborn skull, is that the faithfulness of God is not dependent on if these prayers are answered or not. Because no, Jesus modeled that through his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that God did not answer. No, the faithfulness of God was displayed at the cross and resurrection, period. The faithfulness of God was shown in my life and in your life, Christian, by saving me and you and pulling us out of the pit of despair and standing us on the firm foundation of Jesus. The love of God and the faithfulness of God is not dependent on our prayers being answered. No, it's the other way around. Our crazy, big, bold prayers are simply, are simply a response to the faithfulness of God. Again, I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I want to call us to simply look to Jesus and his goodness and his faithfulness and just marvel at his grandeur, mar- marvel at his steadfast love that never leaves, that, never, that, that extends up into the heavens, that will always outrun us when we run from God. You see, the love of God will never give up on us. And simply as a response to the love of God, seeing it and truly knowing it, uh, let's just ask, what are our prayers and dreams for you and those around you? And just, this is the last thing, just before we end our time. If you're here today and you've never been baptized, next week is the week to do it. You know, baptism, it does not save you. It's simply a symbol that you've responded in faith to the love of God shown at the cross. It's a public declaration of faith that says the old life is gone, the new life is here, that the love of God has captured you, and that your life has been changed by the immense, never-ending love. Again, baptism is simply telling the world outwardly what God has done inwardly. I don't have to know half the Bible to be baptized or know a certain amount of verses. No, the only requirement for baptism is belief in Jesus. The scriptures say, believe and be baptized. That's it. Jesus commanded it, and so we do it. It's an act of obedience to God. It's the first step of obedience in the, in the life of a believer. And so if you profess faith, and you've never been baptized, the call today is to take, take the next step of faith, of baptism. Don't overthink it. Just do it. If, if you're a college student and you're planning to go home, maybe stay here, get baptized, and then invite your family to come and join you, or to watch. And y'all, when we baptize here at New City, it is a celebration. It's a big deal. And I can confidently say we've been praying for you. You being baptized would be a visible picture of an answered prayer. It's a display of God's power at work. If that's you, I pray that you would take that step. But for everyone else, again, let's just simply ask, do our prayers, do they line up with the magnitude of God's love? Are we praying for God to display his power? If you don't know where to start or where to begin in praying, Maybe just start praying for those that are far from God but close to you. And maybe just invite them to Easter next week and let's just see what God does. New City, we serve a really big God whose power and love, it never ends and it never fails. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. God, you displayed your power and your love and your your intimacy and desire to be with us by going to the cross, being nailed to the cross shedding your blood at the cross 
so that our sins could be forgiven. God, what a beautiful picture of your faithfulness. God, you are a faithful, faithful God. And God, we just pray and ask that our prayers would be an act of worship and they would reflect your faithfulness to us at the cross. God, we need you and we ask you to do a mighty work in us. We ask this in Jesus' name.